brought to you by Penguin. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. I would have looked at the envelope for ages, just savouring that moment. Did you just immediately tear it open? Oh yeah, and I've got no control whatsoever in in any aspect of my life, so I just immediately opened it. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast with me, Izzy Sutty. Here we chat to authors about what inspires them. Our guest chooses a handful of objects that have sparked their creativity and then we explore why. My guest today held the number one spot on the Sunday Times bestseller list for over a year with This Is Going To Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor and is adapting it into a comedy drama for the BBC starring Ben Whishaw. His latest book, Kay's Anatomy, is for kids aged around 7 to 12. Its subtitle is A Complete and Completely Disgusting Guide to the Human Body and it became the fastest selling children's non-fiction book of the decade when it was released last year, quite rightly. He's also a scriptwriter for TV and film and a columnist for the Sunday Times. It's the brilliant Adam Kay. Adam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. When I say all that, does it seem like, how have I ever even got time to cook? Uh, yeah, I mean, I made most of that up. Every time someone <laughs> asks me for a biography, I just add in a couple of extra things. To be honest, no one ever checks. That's like, for my first Edinburgh show, I didn't have any quotes because I hadn't done anything. So I gave myself the quote, like Alan Bennett with an electric guitar. And then even now, and that was in 2007, people go, someone said you would. And I go, no, I said that. (laughs) I think you probably didn't make any of that up. You're just being brilliantly modest. So listen, the first question I want to know is, because we've gigged together, um, you've worked with my partner on the brilliant crims that you wrote. Um, You've written in a lot of different mediums. And also you're a songwriter. I reckon when people read this is going to hurt or twas the night shift before Christmas. They, some of them might think, oh, well, he had all this material. It must have been really convenient. He probably just decided which order it would go in and made it into a book. But was it a bit more complicated than that to go from writing stand-up shows and TV scripts to writing a book? I guess it's a case of yes and no, as I've done all sorts of different kinds of writing from stage to telly to, you know, adult you know, writing to to kids, writing to journalism. It's all basically storytelling with a beginning and a middle and an end. And ultimately, as long as your voice is is there and, and you sort of understand it's got that shape, it's sort of the same thing. Um, the process for This Is Going To Hurt was essentially turning shoeboxes full of like scraps of things I'd written over the years into a book. My idea was that the, the real, true, honest version of the book is if it's presented exactly like that. So some are just bullet points on a um, on a post-it note and, you yeah. know, and some are more fleshed out. And then um, my editor pointed out that that was absolutely bananas. And what I should do is make it possible for the readers to understand what's going on. So there was an element of, of editing. That, and then there had to be loads of editing so I didn't go to prison because uh, obviously <laughs> a lot of it was sort of very personal, confidential patient information. I did have a lot of the material there. So that, would, um, that, made, it, that made it sort of relatively quick. Both books are kind of in the same vein, really, aren't they? I think the reason I love it so much is because they're so funny and also they 
I presume and it seems are completely true. So you just feel like you're being let into this secret diary of a very funny doctor, which is essentially what's happening, I suppose. Um, And that you're privy to this world that I just never would have dreamed these things could happen and you present them in such a funny way. It lifts the the hood, I guess, because they were written contemporaneously. You know, the vast majority of it is sort of unfiltered. Hopefully it, it does let people know what it's like on the on the on the front line and um it's also a bit of a confidence trick because i sort of reel people in with some disgusting stories of objects in orifices and all of that and uh, i guess there's a, a slight message in the books because the reason there was a long gap between me writing them as a as a as a doctor from 2004 to 2010 or whatever it was and you know 7 8 years later publishing them it was politically motivated really there was the, the junior doctor's strike where essentially the government was saying the doctors are being greedy and they want more money and the doctors are saying we're not it's not about that we're not being greedy we um you know it's about working conditions which means patient safety and um i realized at that point that the doctors had a very very quiet voice because you know yeah. they're working 100 hours a week in the they're, hospital they're working so all the time yeah i just wanted to give the doctor's side of the story and um if I'd have called it a harrowing polemic about the plight of a junior doctor, I suspect I'd have sold nine copies and we wouldn't be chatting. Um, so we majored on the on the funny stuff so that hopefully people would um, take me seriously with the, the less funny stuff. Well, let's go to your first object, which um, I think is from one of the people that inspired you as you wrote the first book, This Is Going To Hurt, and it's a letter. Would you describe it for us and tell us why it's so special? This is a letter... Uh, from um, the person that I'm aspiring to be in everything I I do, which is uh, Alan Bennett, not Alan Bennett with an electric guitar, who's, of course, (laughs) Izzy Satie. Thank you. um, He's obviously, you know, the grand master diarist, humorist, and, you know, I've, I've been reading and loving his work since since school and um he was the first writer who actually taught me that reading could make you laugh out loud and it didn't just have to be stuff you didn't quite understand but pretended you did in your in your English essays um and his storytelling and his sort of absolute command of the of the language was has been um since you know now for you know 25 years inspiring to me And I was at a gig. So I sort of stand up on stage and, um, and read out loud and pretend that's a show. And, uh, and afterwards when it was legal, um, I've always been more than happy to, you know, sign people's tickets or books or whatever they want. And a bloke came up to me who'd, um, who'd been working on Alan Bennett's brilliant show at the National Alleluia. And he said that, you know, loads of people in the, in the cast had, um, had been reading it and he saw Alan Bennett had a copy and I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is incredible. So I wrote to his, um, I think I, it's the, the only bit of fan mail I've ever, I've ever written. I wrote to, um, Alan Bennett's agent to say, I heard you read my book and this is, uh, you don't even need to reply. I just want to say, you know, all the stuff I just said to you about how great he is. And then I got a, a letter, uh, back in the, in the post, uh, and I recognised his spidery writing on the on the envelope, and it. And I won't I won't read it out because it feels like sort of betraying a, a confidence. But he basically said, 
I haven't read your book and I've got no idea um, who you are and I definitely didn't read it then. Uh, but thank you for your nice stuff. But um, that did make me go and buy your book. And then he said some nice stuff about my Aww. book. So, and, um, and it's, it's pinned up in my office uh, where I write because um, Alan Bennett saying nice stuff about some words I wrote, there can be no greater uh, motivation on, on bad writing days. What was the time lapse between receiving it and opening it? Because I would have looked at the envelope for ages, just savouring that moment. Did you just immediately tear it open? Oh or? yeah, and I've got no control whatsoever okay. in, in any aspect of my life, so I just immediately opened it. <laughs> not even neatly. I've, I've, I've kept the envelope and not even neatly with a sort of a proper letter opener or a knife. It's just sort of my finger jabbed in and sort of ripping it across. Um. When you were a doctor and you were writing these diaries, did you think that one day, not necessarily that they'd be published and do incredibly well, but that someone else might see them? I'm thinking back to when I wrote diaries, even as a kind of 12, 13 year old, they were almost for someone else's eyes. Like I imagined the boy I was in love with finding it and reading this entry about him. Or were they really just for you to to kind of a record for you of, of how harrowing and how kind of up and down those days were? I think the truth of it is that at the time I didn't really know why I was doing it. But looking back at it, it was quite clearly my method of coping with the bad stuff was writing down the gross stuff and the silly stuff and the funny stuff. They don't teach you how to deal with the bad days at work when you're at medical school. And it's this very strange anachronism of the system, which is very slowly starting to change. And there's a dark sense of humour that's almost encouraged um, as a way of, I don't know, letting off steam or, you know, somehow having this valve to, to, to open. Ultimately, it didn't work. It wasn't a thick enough suit of armour to cope with with everything that the, the, the job threw at me. And, and hence, you know, here I am um, as, a, as a writer rather than as a doctor. But they, they, did, they did help me and they, they, they got me through a lot. There was just a sort of a limit to what that could do. Did you start writing the diaries very early on? Did you write some in training and just decide that they weren't you know, you weren't going to use them for the books? Or is it something that came about as a coping mechanism? I've always written. I did write diaries through medical school. The frequency definitely increased um, when I started uh, working on the wards. Interestingly, the the frequency with which I, I went back to my diaries was, was was much greater when work got tougher. Yeah. And as time went on... And um, looking back through everything I, I wrote, as, as I did a few years ago when I was compiling um, my first book, it, they also got darker. At the start, it was, you know, 80, 90% funny, silly. And then by the end, it was 50-50, the funny stuff and the rough stuff. And Was that because the rough stuff was happening all along, but you just didn't write it down, whereas you became yeah exa exactly yeah. that I was sort of um I think I was probably being more honest with my diaries 
So the next object is album. And I really love this album. I'm glad you chose it. And please, could you tell us what it is and why? I listen quite compulsively to albums uh, again and again and again until I know every single syllable, every single, you know, strum of every single instrument um, until I eventually hate them. Um, But this is something I've been playing since it was the soundtrack to my GCSE revision. And I can, I still play it and I think it's glorious and it's a different class by Pulp. Pulp were a massive part of my kind of school years as well. And different classes is just such a good album, isn't it? It's it's just incredible. Um, they're the, probably the the band I I've seen the most live, um, which is um, which is pretty amazing because they performed live um, very very little. Um, but I was the level of weird stalkery fan that I went to multiple um, gigs on their um, this is hardcore tour. And yeah. I'm I'm absolutely I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And when I was at university, um, I saw in about the year two thousand two thousand one, I saw Jarvis Cocker in the the, the big atrium in, in the Tate Modern. I think it's the most starstruck I've ever really been. And uh, and I went up to him and he signed my travel card, which I still have. Oh, God. is it next to the Alan Bennett letter? It isn't. It's in it's in a separate separate section. So um, that sort of stuff's in my in my bedside cabinet. Okay, um, I met him once. I did a very you know those sort of big gigs where everyone does four minutes. Yeah, and it's um, it was one of those, and I didn't think and were loads and loads and loads of us on, and he was absolutely lovely. Um, yeah. Oh, great. I mean, it, it, he's he's just a genius. I think so too, and I think he's really modest. And I used to think that everyone was essentially quite nice when they were famous because they'd got everything they wanted. And I can now confirm that that is not true. (laughs) No, no. When you're famous, you have to, for the most part, and this only applies to like 99% of famous people, um, they can either be good or nice. Oh, yes, sure. Okay. But does that mean if you're nice, then you can't You're you're generally one of the rubbish famous people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Jarvis is, is good and nice. Yeah, he is. He's the exception to the rule. Do you listen to music when you're writing? This is not writing advice for anyone. And uh, and my husband thinks this is absolutely bananas. I listen to drone-in radio my entire day, pretty much. Even, even in, in, in bed, there's a constant hum of some right-wing monster phoning into a, a radio station, arguing with the host. And it's just... I don't know why. I've always had something like LBC on in the background. Is it like, yeah, it's not intrusive. It's just comforting. I, it, it's just, it's white noise for me. What's the, what's the thing where people, um, is it ASMR or something? Oh, where they yeah. Sort of, yeah. The, the, I think that's what it is for me. It just sort of just gets me in the right, at the right emotional level to be able to do writing. You know, if I'm on a TV show or something and I've sort of broken out the writing room to work in a my own room they'll someone will come in and there's sort of talk radio on in the background what what are you doing i thought you meant to be right oh no i am right i just it's quite yeah i find it very comforting when i'm driving you can can easily get rid of six or seven hours with that sort of in the background can't you yes and the conversations can go on for so long like one person can talk about brexit for like 38 minutes 
and, and you, yeah, these particularly the in the middle corner. of the night, and you uh, yeah. you just you realise what's happening um, that they're sort of they're, that no one else has phoned in. Yeah, that's it. You're, just... You're driven all the way to Milton Keynes, and it's just been <laughs> <laughs> you and yeah, yeah. Uh, when the pandemic first hit, I was kind of like, okay, I'll have loads of time to work now. I won't have any distractions. Then I remembered that I have two kids. Um, one oh, of whom is no, then. Oh. Yeah, I, yeah, I just remembered. <laughs> um, and then um, I and then I realised that we'd all have to be in the whole time. So it's a bit, perhaps a bit different from me. But have you found generally that your creativity has been affected by COVID? Not hugely. My baseline anxiety is obviously higher. And when that hits a certain level, it makes it very different to, you know, to knuckle down and and, and do some work. But I've always worked from home, apart from, you know, when I'm on stage somewhere, and this is working from home. And um, James has always worked from home. We're used to spending time together in the house. It's been all right. I've been reasonably productive. Um, I write generally quite late at night. Is that because less people are contacting you? I always find in the evening I'm not getting as many emails, so it's... Exactly. And it's not so much people contacting me, it's me finding distraction. Yeah. It's much harder to to get lost in, in Twitter for three hours um, when it's 2am and no one's posting. Yes. So I just need to be protected from myself and, and that happens best at, that happens best at night. Are you those people who kind of forgets time and forgets there's food and drink and just writes and writes and goes, oh, I haven't eaten all day? Oh, or no, are you I like wish me? I was one of those people. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, those people. No, I've, I have to have some kind of deadline or um, word count or I have to have something to hit and I'm counting it down, sort of, you know, keystroke by keystroke until I get there. I use a programme called uh, Scrivener. I mean, there's loads of different, you know, ways of sort of organising your writing. I, I find it quite um, quite easy to use. But one of its functions is it's got, it can do like a sort of a countdown for your day's words. And it does as this sort of bar that goes across, a progress bar. Oh, that's and good. it starts off, you know, sort of panic button red. And it goes uh, all the way down to, to, to traffic light green and, um, and through, a, you know, a trillion gradations. And that, that sort of, I have to slightly gamify it. I can't get lost in my writing. I don't think I've ever once <laughs> looked up from my laptop and not known how many words I've done. I'm exactly the same. I, I have to have a deadline and I have to, when I was writing my I've just written a novel when I was writing that I had to do a thousand words a day and I got very anal about it and kind of wouldn't stop if I'd done 999 and and then after a bit I was like come on is Eve essentially done a thousand but I yeah I really like and then once I remember I wrote this thing with Josie Long years and years ago just a pilot that didn't ever get picked up but we used to write in this office every day and I couldn't start until we'd worked out what we were going to have for lunch and I was like oh this is interesting I I have to know what time we're going to have lunch and what it is before I can actually begin. But that was always yeah. like me creating my own reward, I suppose, which is essentially what you're doing by going along the progress bar. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I'm also uh, a thousand words a day. Um, so this is advice stolen from Jane Goldman, the the wonderful um, uh, scriptwriter. Yeah. And uh, when I was sort of in a sort of how do I approach this, um, with a huge project she said a thousand words a day 
and you're not allowed to look back at anything else you've done beforehand. So you move on to the next day. Because otherwise you get into this sort of, you get a really good first third of your project. Yes. And you just endlessly improve that and never manage to move forward. So I do my thousand words and I sort of, I've got another separate document where I scroll down things that have occurred to me that I need to change about other stuff that, you know, I've I've written a a thing that's got a knock-on effect that means I need to change something before. I just, I approach that right at the end when I do my, my edits. And that means that you can reach the end of a project. And a thousand words a day is a nice achievable goal. That number will be the same, will be different for, for, for everyone. I started trying 1500, but sort of one in three, one in four days, I didn't hit it. And then you just feel useless because actually it's not, it isn't that much when you think about it. So it, you just need to have a goal that you can definitely hit. Thereabouts. Yes, it needs, to, it needs to stretch you a tiny bit on the days, on the harder days, doesn't it? But not be so much of a challenge that you can't do it. Exactly. And yeah. if, and also this is this is for someone who's got the luxury of not having other stuff to do or to, to write or, you know, alongside childcare or a day job and things like that. A thousand words could be an impossible goal. So it might be 500 words or 300 words. But, you know, a thousand words a day means that in theory, you can do the first draft of, you know, a normal sized novel in two to three months. Yeah. And then and for, 500 ways a day, it, it's six months. So even at, even at relatively small quantities, it really, it magically adds up. You're so right about not going back. I couldn't deliberate for 15, 20 minutes on whether to write that or which in a sentence. And it, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're essentially, I think, it's essentially the same as going on Twitter or something that you know really that you're being naughty and that you should get on with the next thousand. But yeah. The next object is a musical instrument and could you please describe it and explain how it inspires you? A friend of mine, his mum was a really famous piano teacher. In her old age, her kids had to convert the the, the room that the piano was in uh, into a a room for her to to have a downstairs bedroom so she could be cared for at home and she wouldn't have to, to move out, which meant selling her her beloved grand piano, which hadn't been played for many, many years and had gone into disrepair and they were going to flog it on, on eBay and it wouldn't, it wouldn't have got the right sort of money. So I, I, I paid him sort of what I thought the, this lovely piano was worth and it's a, uh, and it's a lovely old Beckstein I don't, I don't even know what the, the wood is. I'm not good at this sort of stuff. It looks sort of walnut coloured. Yeah. And I couldn't afford to have it restored. So it went into storage at a, a great piano restory place. As and when bits of cash came in, they, they would do like further bits of restoration to <laughs> it. Great. And it eventually got properly restored. So my piano is, is important to me because... Izzy, you're a much better musician than me. And I don't for think you, that's true. You, I think it actually is true because you can, for you, it looks effortless when you're, when you're playing. Playing the piano for me uses up 100% of my processing power, <laughs> particularly if I'm reading music. So when I'm playing the piano, my brain doesn't have the capacity to think about anything else 
all the deadlines that are, are looming and all the, the tax I've got to pay and all the, the stress and the admin and the, the, the life nightmares. Uh, um, I can't think about those while I'm playing. I think like, like what happens to normal people when they, when they jog and stuff. It sort of you know, blows yes, the cobwebs. It, yes, yes. For me, it's picking up um, a, a piece of music that I could play perfectly well uh, when I was 12 and now for some reason can't and uh, <laughs> sort of slowly hammering my way through it. Um, it's just my best way of, of getting rid of stress. Do you know what? It's good that you've got that and it's in your house because my version of that is skiing, but I can't do that in my house. That's so much, so much harder, isn't it? I've tried. Tried doing it down the stairs, but um, <laughs> wouldn't advise yeah. it. We're going to move on to your latest book, which is for children, which um, we've got and my daughter loves. Um, the reason I think I love it is because it's so gross at times and that I, I absolutely love gross things. I used to have a bogey mountain behind, behind my bed when oh, I was amazing. a kid. I used to pick my nose every night and wipe it on the, the headboard behind me as I was oh, reading. Yeah. What sort of material headboard? Um, wood. Wood, um, right, And okay. then every few days I'd sweep my hand across the back and all the dried bogies would just disappear. Yeah, yeah and tumble and, and, down behind. Yeah. yeah, but so I never thought about where they were going. And then after about a year of us living there, mum said, come on, we've really got to properly clean your room and so we moved the bed and found all this stuff under the bed like forgotten books and things then in the corner there was this bogey mountain and they'd all fallen into the same place because I always read I had a double bed then but I read on the same side of the bed every night as you can tell I just love stuff about bogeys and there's lots of stuff about things like that and poo and um, it's very funny and it's silly and it's also like your adult books um it doesn't shy away from serious stuff, which I think is brilliant too. And it talks about cancer, it talks about death, it talks about anxiety. With this, you've got Henry Packer, who is another brilliant comedian, isn't he, to illustrate. His illustrations work fantastically with your words. Did it feel like a collaboration? Did you go to him with finished text and did he draw them then or was it a bit more kind of collaboration along, uh, along the process? It was very collaborative, and I didn't I didn't know that he he did illustrations. Um, Penguin had very kindly said they you know that, that they were interested in me writing this uh, this kids book. Uh, I was out in I was out in in town when that was a thing. I was out with James, and we went round the the beautiful kids section in in Waterstones in Piccadilly, in the old Simpson store. And it's absolutely huge children's section. And sort of picking up loads of books and just looking at the illustrators and and hoping that we were going to see the you know the the perfect uh, illustrator who we could sort of try and beg to work on my book and they, none of them sort of felt quite right and it was sort of we left slightly demoralised because there are all these brilliant illustrators but there was something about the sort of specific humour of of. Of, of what I was trying to write that didn't seem to gel. In fact, I went straight from Waterstones to um, the 40th birthday party of Mike Wozniak, uh, yet another comedian to get mentioned on this uh, podcast. And Mike's an old friend. He's also a former doctor who I've known for a million years. And um, at Mike's party, I got talking to, to Henry and he mentioned his his drawings at some point. I didn't know he'd done them. And I said, Do you want, can you just emailed me like some of your some of your drawings and and then the next day I got the 
email from him and it's like this is this is perfect this is extraordinary luck or sort of fate that this has this has happened and um and then penguin loved it as as well and 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 here we are so he's been involved right from the from the start you know when it was and it was just the bear. Can I say bones? Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Of the idea, um, which he was sort of working out who the different characters were for all the different chapters. And then he got an early draft and worked out how it would all fit together. And he would come up with ideas about how I could change the text to make it. I just wanted it to all feel like one thing that we'd co-written. I, I, I really like how it how it gels together. And I think we've got a similarly silly sense of humour. And I'm... I'm so lucky to be working with him. Well, it works brilliantly. Um, we're actually going to have an extract from the book now. I think that you cover difficult subjects for children in a very, you've got a very trustworthy voice in the book. It's very well done. Um, so we're just going to have a listen to a few extracts from the audio book, starting with drugs. Drugs are the name for anything that you can take that has an effect on your body. So every medicine is technically a drug, but when I say the word, you probably think of illegal drugs. These drugs affect how neurons in the brain send messages to each other, and this changes how you feel or think. There are loads of different types of illegal drugs, including ones that can be smoked, such as cannabis, and pills or powders, such as ecstasy. People take drugs because they like the way it makes them feel, but drugs are illegal for a simple reason. They're dangerous. One day in the future, you'll probably meet people who've tried drugs, and they might even offer you some to try yourself. It's okay to say no. Think about what you'll say if someone ever offers you drugs. Sometimes it's easier to have someone else to blame. For example, I can't. My dad would kill me if he found out. Or, no thanks, I've got to get up really early tomorrow. Are we done yet? Nearly. I just need to do a round of... Kay's Questions! Sounds terrible. Okay, first question. What causes an ice cream headache? Sometimes when you eat an ice cream or drink a really cold drink, you might get brain freeze, a short, sharp, horrible headache that can really spoil your chocolate chip cookie dough raspberry ripple supreme with multicoloured sprinkles and pieces of walnut. Uh, You'll be relieved to hear that it's not actually your brain freezing. It's because your nerves have got muddled and sent pain signals to me by accident when they were sensing cold temperatures. (laughs) Silly nerves. That was a reading from Kay's Anatomy, written and read by my guest Adam Kay. The audiobook is available to buy now and also features the voices of Sandy Toxvig, Rose Matafeo, Mark Gatiss, Lolly Adafope and Andy Nyman. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. That's like a dream line-up. How much of a say did you get to have with the casting for the audiobook? Uh, yeah, I'm a massive control freak, so an enormous say. Um, Good. And a really irritating <laughs> amount of say. We had this idea that, I mean, for my previous books, I've, you know, I've, I've gone and stood in front of a microphone for, you know, however many hours or days and, and read it out. And it just didn't feel... It felt that the, that the kids' book would lose something from it was already losing half of what it had by not having the illustrations so I wanted to essentially animate it in some way and I had the idea of each chapter 
basically being a conversation between me and a different organ who could be an expert in that side of things. And, you know, I'd, um, I would read out various chunks of some bits like, uh, you know, as, as those, as per those extracts, but for the rest of it, sort of give the, give Sandy Toxvig uh, time to shine as the, as the brain. And it was, you know, it's a, I was blown away by um, the calibre of the people who said uh, yes, uh, or maybe it was just the middle of lockdown and they didn't have an excuse. It's like a separate thing. It's like an audio adventure rather than you sitting there listening to someone say words. Oh, that's uh, really I, kind. I, I, no, was, yeah. I, I had to totally rewrite it. So it was more like I was writing a sort of a, you know, a, a radio series for kids or something. So it was all sort of scripted. Yeah, yeah, that's how it felt. So your final object is a saw. Um, can you describe the saw and tell us why you chose it? Uh, yeah, it's a Victorian bone cutting saw. Um, you've got to have a hobby, I guess. And uh, mine isn't, it isn't bone cutting, but it is collecting antique medical paraphernalia. And it's something that I, I've been doing since medical school. And I've got, I mean what is now essentially a quite horrible museum of this stuff cluttering up my office. The bone saw, it's still very, still very sharp and shiny. All sorts of things like sort of tonsil guillotines and sort yeah. of primitive syringes and things. It's, it also symbolises part of your life, doesn't it? Although presumably you weren't using bone cutting sores when you were I doctor. wasn't because yeah no particularly because I was a gynecologist yes um, but, uh, <laughs> and so uh, that would there would be sort of eight or ten reasons to strike me off for coming to work with a bone cutting saw uh, <laughs> um, but no it's it was a it was an important part of my life and it's something that's you know still looms very very large and um, and I dare say will continue to do so there's a bit towards the end of Kay's anatomy that talks about vaccines. They're mentioned in, in a few places, aren't they? But there's a bit where it, it says that they're safe and that people might tell you that they're not. Um, do you think that's even more important at the moment? I would imagine the answer is yes. I was reading about the Spanish flu and that apparently then there were protesters who didn't believe in it, who thought it was all a hoax and were protesting in the streets. And so I found that really interesting that maybe there's always a pocket of people who will go against the flow? There will always be those people. Unfortunately, um, these days we've got Twitter to amplify their their voices and um, and you know all the various other social media outlets that let sort of very bad, very wrong, very dangerous opinions spread. Um, there's that old. Um, I don't know that the wording of it, but it's about a lie going around the world before the truth has put its shoes on, or something. And that's that's, that's never been more true than um, misinformation. It's hugely important now. Vaccines are simply incredible. They're they're one of the most amazing innovations in the history of medicine. There's there's very few things that you can you can point your finger at and say that idea saved hundreds of millions of lives and you can say that about um hand washing in surgery and you can say that about antibiotics and you can say that about 
vaccines. And kids are growing up in a confusing environment now. I didn't, I grew up knowing that vaccines are important and brilliant. And not every kid is, is going to, is going to necessarily know that. So I want them to trust me because like in my other books, I've made them trust me. I've tricked them into trusting me by being funny or silly or gross. So that when I talk about the more difficult stuff, they'll hopefully believe that more than things they hear in the playground, because it is literally life or death stuff. Yeah. Well, this podcast is going out on World Book Day. I I saw a very funny tweet from you advising kids not to dress as something from your book. What was it? Do you remember? I mean, was it a degloved penis? I don't think it was a degloved penis. going to hurt. Okay, fine. <laughs> I don't think it was the degloved penis, which okay. I remember very well. In that bit, I was just, because that's from a guy who's, hasn't he shimmied down a lamppost or something yeah, on a night 18 out? 18-year-old after A-level oh results or something, God. sort of, um, yeah, exactly, sliding down like a fireman's pole, um, misjudging the texture <laughs> of, of the pole and, uh, yeah, and doing some permanent damage. So yeah, it wouldn't go as that. Wouldn't go as a uh, internally inserted Kinder egg. There, there's lots of things in them. Um, there's in fact very few things in in this is going to hurt that you could you could credibly uh, go to school dressed as. Yeah, exactly. My friend, do you know Daisy Haggard? Yeah, she's an actor. Yeah, um, yeah, love her. I'm sure she won't mind saying this. She first fell in love with her husband at a fancy dress party where he was dressed as a used sanitary towel. <laughs> That just sort of made me love her even more. I was like, that's what I would have done. And that kind of really separates the wheat from the chaff, doesn't it? If you're you're the used sanitary towel. Um, This podcast is going to go out on World Book Day. Obviously, you love books. I think you've said you're not a brilliant reader. You may not remember saying that, but I think you were talking about No, I do do remember saying it and I I unfortunately have to stand by it. I'm, I'm very jealous of the people who have you know who managed to read you know a book a week and um but I get a huge joy from from reading but I have to make the time and remember how much it gives back to me that sounds like me and couch to 5k um which I'm going to start again what's the book you love the most today I can never answer that the book I'm always going to love the most but today if I'm asking you what is the book that springs to mind Heartburn by Nora Ephron. I love that book. It's just it's just perfect, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. You wouldn't change a word. If anyone hasn't read it, please do. It's based on her, her life, isn't it? It is. It's based on a based on a sort of very messy divorce, but interspersed with recipes. Yeah. Have you ever tried to cook any of the recipes? I haven't. No. I've only just graduated onto cooking like curry and pie. So I think it'd be too much of a leap. I mean, I've only just graduated onto cooking. <laughs> to my utter shame, I was—I could only heat things up. Uh, probably one of our greatest pleasures in in life has been, you know, going out to um, going out to restaurants, particularly with friends, and we would do that, you know, very often, like sort of mad lushes. To the extent that, and this this doesn't paint me in a good light at all. So 
the first flat uh, me and James bought together. And it needed a bit of doing up, including um, redoing the kitchen, which we did when we moved in. And then we outgrew it and, and sold it three or four years later. And the estate agent came round to sort of do all the, the photos and the measuring up for the for the website or whatever, and opened the oven. And in the oven were the polystyrene blocks that um, <laughs> that, it, that it came with. <laughs> And when did you when did you put this in? I, thought, I don't know, like four years ago. So it turns out that we'd we'd had a kitchen fitted and never never used it. But um, uh, <laughs> but now we can both cook there to a certain go. extent. <laughs> so this is the very last question. I just want to know about the TV adaptation of This Is Going to Hurt, which is starring Ben Whishaw as you which is amazing. He's an incredible actor. Was it like the audiobook? Did you have a big hand in casting? The ca- casting was, has been mainly done by the, the director and, uh, and the casting director, Neil Gold, who's, who's, who's brilliant. Um, but I've known from the very start of writing these scripts that it had to be played by Ben Whishaw, who I think is just one of our greatest uh, actors ever. He's just totally brilliant and wonderful and to the extent that I didn't have a a plan b other than um cancelling the entire project um and we've just started um filming and uh it will be on the, the BBC and AMC at um at some point assuming Covid doesn't you know delay it too much when I was doing my final draft of my novel, I'm doing the copy edit now, and I I can't sleep every night because I'm thinking about whether Billy Piper or Sheridan Smith should play the main part when it goes to series. And it's like, is you you need to do the book first? Like, just... No, this stuff this stuff's important. Do you think you need, so? You need you need to think about it. Okay, I'm ah. going to have to start befriending both of them then and <laughs> <laughs> prepping them. No, I know they're both amazing actors. They're both meant to be brilliant people. So um, okay, brilliant. I've not been lucky enough to work with either of them, but um, no, but, yeah. Have I, but yeah, prosecco problems, which <laughs> which lead. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you. No, thanks for having me. It's been great to chat. And before we go, don't forget to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. It helps us to make more of these. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you. Somebody to Love. A Family Story by Alexandra Hemmingsley. In this heartwarming celebration of the body, family, and friendship, Alexandra Hemmingsley gives us the honest account of what it's like to feel connected, then severed, and then finally to accept your body. This is an inspiring contribution to some of the most complex and heated debates of our time. I sensed my peripheral vision going fuzzy. The last time I'd felt this was in the moments before passing out in a queue shortly after donating blood. By the time I'd realised that the monochrome fuzz meant I was about to faint, my body was already halfway to the floor. A half second of blissful surrender. There was nothing more I could do. The next thing I knew, a kind lady in an M&S tabard was offering me a sip of water. This time I didn't hit the floor, but the blissful sense of surrender was the same. I felt myself falling, and I knew that there was nothing I could do about it. Somebody to Love by Alexandra Hemmingsley is available to download now.